Hey, this is Andrew Stewart-Jones. I play Christmas Allen on Gotham, and you are listening to Gotham TV Podcast. This is Victoria Cartagena. I play Renee Montoya on Gotham, and you're listening to Gotham TV Podcast. Welcome to Gotham TV Podcast, the unofficial podcast about the TV series Gotham and the connected DC Universe. In this podcast, we'll look at the news, review and discuss episode two of Gotham, entitled Selena Kyle. And as always, we will include feedback from our listeners on the episode. I'm one of your hosts, John. And I'm your other host, Derek. Welcome back. Welcome. Yeah, indeed. Um... Well, I suppose we can go and straight into the news. Yeah. For Gotham, um, whilst we said we weren't going to talk about ratings, <laughs> um, <laughs> numbers guy here, Derek, uh, decided that it would be great to just indicate to the followers of Gotham on Channel 5 in the UK and obviously in Ireland is that it won the time slot for episode 1, um, the pilot, beating out a number of its closest rivals in the UK, that those being Channel 4 and BBC2, with approximately a 10% share of the audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is about 2 million viewers. So uh, so a big, a big night in the UK for, uh, yeah. for Gotham. Yeah, they've done so really well. a really strong opener there for Channel 5 and for Gotham in the UK and Ireland. So that is great news. Absolutely. Really good news. And um, following on from the trend set by our, our friends over in the USA and Canada with the strong uh, showing there. Mm -hmm. So... I think that's great news, and I think we also now have to say that we will never talk about ratings again until maybe after the end of the episode season. Two. Oh, episode end of the season. Yeah, the end of the season. <laughs> and that segues right. me nicely into the fact that there is an extra six episodes that have been commissioned um, by Fox for Warner Brothers Television, um, so that we now get a full season of 22 episodes. I love this because we've been covering Gotham since, uh, as you know, since uh, about March and uh, we started out with uh, 13 episodes in the series and there was a justification made for that, that Fox were trying to keep it short and make it tight and uh, we talked through that and then we heard about the confidence that Fox had in it so they were going to give them 16, which is, you know, really big for Fox to get to add an extra three episodes and now we have to say, well, they're giving it a full season order of 22, which actually means they weren't that confident in the show to begin with or they didn't want to spend that amount of money on a really expensive show to, be, to begin with. They're probably using the Netflix money. In probably. They get a lot of Netflix money. Yeah. <laughs> so the, but the good news is we get 22 episodes, so if one person moans about the fact that the show goes off air <laughs> after 22 episodes and they can't wait for the next season, I'll be annoyed. Uh, you get 22 episodes, so almost half a year of the show, which is awesome. Yeah, really, really good. Um, Some more great news. Yeah, brilliant news, brilliant news. Uh, as you know, because we didn't stop talking about it, we were over at New York Comic Con last week. Um, <laughs> Uh, we bathed in the gorgeousness that was New York Comic Con, absolutely. Um, and I picked up a slight cold. Yeah, as, as did I, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but we did pick up some really good news and some great little tidbits because we had a uh, we had some roundtable interviews with the cast of the show and uh, and with Danny Cannon, the uh, one of the directors and producer of the show. 
uh, which is really good fun. Um, we've uh, put up the interviews on our website. If you want to go and check for those, they're, uh, they're in the interview section on GothamTVPodcast.com. Uh, we talked to Ben McKenzie, Donald Loeb, um, Robin Lord-Taylor. Aaron Richards, Sean Pertwee, and Danny Cannon, who was who is, I should say, the executive producer. And this is all really quite nice because it's now got a full complement of 22 episodes. Mm-hmm. And okay, they probably will have to figure out those additional six um, from the 16 uh, in terms of writing and how that will sort of move through to the end of the season. But the one thing that definitely came across is they have tons of ideas for storylines and they have tons of ideas for characters to use. But that's it. One of the big questions for most of the cast and certainly towards Danny Cannon was, you know, this brilliant sandbox of toys that DC has to offer, which ones are you going to be using? And um, you could see that he really just kind of didn't want to say, but there were a few little things that were, that came out from from that. And they included, amongst others, um, the murderer Victor Zaz. Yeah, yeah, one of my favorite characters, um, a really creepy character who cuts himself every time he murders his victim. Um, so how are they going to do that on a TV show that goes out at 8 p.m. in, in the U.S.? I don't know, but they haven't strayed away from violence in this show so far. So uh, that's going to be really exciting. There um, was also Harvey Dent, um, who we talked about last week, Nicholas Agosta. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, he's going to be popping up in the show as well, which has numerous possibilities as to how uh, that could be handled. We now know that Jim Gordon's father was uh, a DA. Maybe there's a connection there to Jim Gordon that he associates with. We obviously know from Gotham Central a connection with one of the other detectives, Rene Montoya. Mm -hmm. So there's some interesting lines that Harvey Dent could potentially take here. Absolutely, and, and Danny Cannon actually told us it was uh, episode 8 for uh, Victor Zaz and episode 10, I think, for uh, if I remember correctly, uh, for Harvey Dent. Um, but there was one other character also revealed, uh, who, if you were listening last week, I said was my favourite character uh, from the whole uh, the whole plethora of, uh, of characters in the Batman universe. Uh, it's an, a character called Tommy Elliot, and I'm not going to spoil who that is. You have to listen to last week and make the connection yourself. Uh, but yeah, Tommy, Tommy <laughs> Elliot is... Quizzes. I know. <laughs> uh, Tommy Elliot is a childhood friend of Bruce Wayne, um, who has a bit of a dark future in Gotham, we'll say. Um, and I love this. This was this was something that I think kind of fell out of Sean Pertwee's mouth by mistake. Got a bit of a <laughs> bit of a look from, uh, from Danny Cannon when he said it, but they laughed it off. There's uh, there's tons of stuff coming up for that show, so um, that was really interesting. I think as well, what's kind of important here was that even though these things were teased out over the four days of New York Comic Con, Danny Cannon was very much you know we have a huge sandbox here to play with. For him, he actually said he was amazed how many of the characters from the world of Batman and Gotham didn't have origin stories or backstories, so they could begin developing those, creating them even in some cases. Mm-hmm. But he very much said that you know there were a lot of things of, will we have this, will we have that, amongst others being um, the Court of Owls, which is a great idea. Absolutely. Um, and also, I think the Suicide Squad, Holly Quinn, was um, mentioned there as well. And I have to say, if you see a girl in, in Harley Quinn cosplay at, a, uh, at a, a panel event and she's asking you to put Harley Quinn in your show, you're definitely not going to say no to her, is it? <laughs> <laughs> but I think the really interesting thing that he then said was that, in a sense, they've picked 
the characters that they want to work with. Um, they want to lay a solid foundation, get it right. And he was very mindful of the fact that, look, we're still on season one. Mm-hmm. Um, bringing in something like Court of Owls or even the Suicide Squad would be a big event for a season, for a show. Um, and so I think one of the things that we mentioned quite a long time ago in one of our earlier podcasts was um, that we reported that they said they had laid the landscape and the geography for the 13 episodes at that time. And okay, they now have to expand that out. But he was very much of the view that let's get season one right. Let's lay some really good foundations for the core characters. Bring in some of these characters like um, Harvey Dent and Victor Zaz. And in fact, Tommy Elliott. Mm -hmm. And we will play with them, work with them, develop them. And then we will have a look at some of these other bigger um, uh, groupings. And he certainly didn't say that they were off the table. Everything was on the table, but at this moment in season one, they're really trying to just build a really strong foundation for the show, for the storylines, for the story arc, and over the series, uh, and the characters that they've got. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so we we're, we're going to put together a podcast about the about our New York Comic Con uh, stuff. Um, just trying to sort a couple of things out before we do. Uh, so it'll, it'll come up on your feed. Um, but we have uh, we have tons to talk about. It was a brilliant experience and uh, really really enjoyed it. I know I know you did too. Yeah. Um, it so was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So, but one of the other things that happened that that uh, is kind of connected to the DC universe essentially. It's uh, the other show that's being released this week in the states. Uh, Constantine. Uh, premieres in the US on this Friday, the twenty fourth of October. We don't have a premiere date or a channel carrying the uh, carrying the show over here, so we definitely won't be doing a podcast about it. Um, no, nope. because it's going to be probably next year before it's, we see it over here. But we were really lucky while we were over in, over at New York Comic Con, we got to see the pilot twice um, at two different events. Uh, yeah, the Thursday Warner Brother preview screening, and then at the actual Constantine panel with Matt Ryan, Angelica. Saleya and um, David S. Goya at the actual Constantine panel. So that was great, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so um, I'd definitely say check it out. Uh, it's it's an excellent pilot. It's really good, really good fun, very dark, very different to Gotham. Uh, I can see what Danny Cannon was saying about having a crossover between the two shows would be quite a difficult thing to do. Um, it's a very different style. It's the supernatural element of uh, of the DC universe, and there's a very good dry wit as well coming Definitely. from Matt Ryan, which is really funny and and just really on point. Yeah, yeah, and they've they've filmed ten episodes of the show at this mm-hmm. stage as well. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of questions to 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 David Escore about you know what characters might appear, and he's kind of going, I've, I've already filmed ten episodes. There's loads in there for you. Just watch them. They're they're going to be great fun. And you were quite lucky to be actually able to meet uh, Matt Ryan and Helica. Saleya and David S. Goyer as well. Yeah, it was um, very, very, very good. They were incredibly, like with the Gotham cast at the round table, incredibly, and I can't stress this enough, I've probably written it on Facebook and on Twitter <laughs> so many times, really generous mm-hmm. with the time that they gave to each question and to the answers that they, they gave to the question. Mm-hmm. And they were actually really quite open about various things okay if they didn't want to say anything because it was maybe too spoilery yep. then they would say so but they were open about it and one of the things one of the big things that i would say is that it was previously seen in i think it was the second or third constantine trailer and that was um dr fate's helmet 
for those comic books yeah. book fans out there. Yeah, this is essentially DC's version of Doctor Strange, and I'm a huge Doctor Strange <laughs> fan. You know, um, that by now. <laughs> as you yeah, as you know by now. And this was Doctor Fate, who I'm a pretty strong um, advocate of as well. In both screenings, got a huge cheer from the crowd. Mm-hmm. In both of them. It was very consistent, and one of the really interesting answers to the question that I posed as to whether that helmet would see Dr. Fate enter into the DC uh, Constantine or Vertigo Constantine universe was that someone does knock at the door of the cabin that Constantine owns to claim that helmet. Mm Mm-hmm. And not very long into the series as well, nope. so yeah, very interesting. So really, really interesting and a really good bit of information that wasn't just in there to dress the set. It is a significant part, potentially, of the the series, and it shows that Constantine will embrace the wider DC universe. So to put it into a nutshell, we're hugely jealous of our friends in the US who will uh, get to see the series every week from uh, from the 24th of October. We're going to be a while behind, but um, we... We had our appetite clearly wetted uh, oh, yeah. quite heavily for that for that show, so we'll be we'll be waiting unfortunately a little while, but uh, but it was fantastic to see the show and see it kind of shape up. It was really really good, really good. Um, so the final bit of uh, of DC connected universe news that we have um is quite a quite a huge one. Really. Yeah, it's, uh, that that Warner Brothers actually released the DC slate of movies uh, all the way up until twenty twenty. So uh, yeah. just after the end of Comic Con there in New York, mm-hmm. it wasn't a part of that. They um, released their their movie slate. So we all know about Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, Mm -hmm. BVS, um, directed by Zack Snyder. That's certainly getting hyped. Um, But then speaking of Suicide Squad, there will be a Suicide Squad movie um, directed by David Ayer in 2016 as well. Yeah, and David Ayer, I recognized the name instantly and I was trying to work out who it would have known from. He did Training Day, he did End of Watch, two great films, absolutely fantastic films. Uh, he also did Fast and the Furious, so he knows his way around an action blockbuster, I suppose. Uh, I think the first one was probably the best of that series as well, so maybe the fourth. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's really, really interesting to see what David Ayer will do within this universe. Um, it's really, really good. And then the big one for me, I'm delighted to see that there's been an announcement for this. It's a Wonder Woman movie uh, starring Gal Gadot, who's going to appear in, in BVS. Um, that's fascinating. That's fantastic. Finally getting a female superhero on the screen. Um, really strong uh, character. I remember the Wonder Woman character from my childhood, just like Batman 66. Yep. It was something that I watched every single week, along with Incredible Hulk as well. Um, but it's fant- fantastic that finally we're getting a, a strong female yep. character getting her this own This is movie. excellent news. Great news. And that then moves into a Justice League Part 1, which is going to be directed by Zack Snyder and will include reprising roles by Ben Affleck as Batman, Henry Cavill as Superman, and Amy Adams as well. Um, I presume also Gal Gadot will be in that as well. And I'm sure she must. Yeah, I'm sure. I think the reason why they don't want to mention that she's in it is because she has her own movie beforehand and she's in Batman vs. Superman. So if you say that she's going to be in it this far in advance, then you've taken away the possibility that you might die in one of those two films. <laughs> so, uh, whereas don't Superman... Don't kill Wonder uh, Woman. Don't kill Wonder Woman. She's Wonder Woman. <laughs> um, but, but I think that's, that might be the reason. They think it's confirmed definitely that Ben Affleck will return and Henry Cavill will return and Amy Adams will return, but uh, Gal Gadot might be a little bit up in the air, see how the character plays out maybe in the... In Wonder Woman film, and then see how it goes. And then I think one of the important points to just make here is that the DC movie world will 
in no way be connected with our DC TV world yeah. of the likes of Gotham. And the reason why I'm saying this now is because the film scheduled for 2018 is The Flash. And it will not be Grant Gustin mm-hmm. who is The Flash. Barry Allen. It's going to be Ezra Miller. Yeah. I think I think a lot of fans of The Flash and Arrow might be quite saddened by the idea that they're going to have to follow another, another member of cast now, another completely different version of them. In the comic books, there's been five different versions of The Flash, I think. So this could be just a completely different yeah, character. To, that is to, true. Uh, but certainly, there seems to be this point being made that the movie universe for DC is going to be kept quite distinct and separate from the TV universe of yeah. DC. And that's just a different approach to what Marvel is doing. Um, and I don't think it's either better or worse. Absolutely. It's just how it's done. As far as I can see, if we can cope with numerous different universes and and worlds in the comics, we can deal with the fact that different people play different superheroes um, that are on both the TV and on the big screen as well. Yeah, but we do know one person that's very disappointed in this, which is Mr. Stephen Amell. He specifically commented that he didn't want anybody else playing the part of Arrow. Uh, in the near future so will that mean they won't actually have arrow in justice league i don't think Stephen amell has that power but uh there will probably be an actual green arrow in the in the justice league but um but yeah on from that we got confirmation that uh, aquaman's coming uh starring jason momoa from um from uh, game of thrones and that's going to be 2018, 2018 as well as yeah. well yeah shazam <laughs> is gonna be in 2019 you just love that name so that's yeah, that's going to be a bit of fun. And then Justice League Part 2. So they've already planned, essentially, there's uh, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, Justice League Part 1, and Justice League Part 2. All three of them um, are directed by Zack Snyder. So they've, they've kind of made their trilogy plan right there with Zack yep. Snyder. So it's quite interesting. And then there will be Cyborg. Oh, no. <laughs> Starring <laughs> Ray Fisher. <laughs> no, Ray Fisher was announced quite a while ago as playing the part. In 2010. Uh, yeah, but in... Tw- that sounded more like 20... K-9. In Sorry, 2020. Oh. <laughs> it's... Starring uh, K-9. <laughs> Starring K-9 in your version, definitely. Um, but, yeah, Ray Fisher playing uh, playing uh, Cyborg in that film in 2020. So there's tons of films coming out. And then they're going to do a reboot of Green Lantern, which is probably a good idea. Yeah, um, it's a very good idea. Yeah, but they're going to wait for another six years and do that in 2020 as well. No casting rumor for that. No director announced for that. But that's kind of the final film of that phase. What do you think overall? I think it looks to be a pretty interesting slate. Um, it does. And presumably will encourage the... The DC Marvel film and TV war. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. There seems to be a, seems, there's there's tons going on for any comic book fans out there. Anybody that grew up like we did uh, on comic books, this is an exciting time for uh, for being one of these fans. But I don't know how how I'm getting around to watching all this stuff and how I'm going to have time to watch it all and probably record podcasts on each one of these films. Uh, I don't really know how we're going to do it, but we'll work it out. We'll, we'll try out. and see. Yeah, we'll try. We'll and do see. it with your help, listeners. The only thing I thought was that. The tagline for Green Lantern in 2020 must have been, we promise it will be better than the previous one. (laughs) It should be, and it must be, if you're going to do Green Lantern. Because he's such a loved character, you know, and he's a big DC property as well. Mm -hmm. And they did get it really wrong unfortunately, with the the first movie starring Ryan Reynolds, who, in fairness, I really 
have no particular problem with him. It was just CGI soup with a cotton candy script, really. That yeah. just really just... Bleh. It was pretty poor. Yeah. Pretty poor. One other little bit of rumour casting news that came in as well is uh, Jenna Malone, who I know from Danny Darko. Um, yeah. She has been apparently rumoured to be cast as the new Robin in uh, in a Batman film coming up. So they did mention that there's going to be a standalone Batman film, a standalone Superman film, but they're not uh, put into the slate. They're not given dates when they're going to be released. And there's a rumour that Jenna Malone's going to play Robin. Be interesting. Um, mm. Female Robin, which is certainly very Frank Miller. Yeah. Comes from the Frank Miller graphic novel sort of reimagination of uh, the origin tale. Yeah. Um, I think I'd, I'd mentioned before that I uh, kind of get the feeling very much so since the casting of Ben Affleck and since we've seen the, the I suppose the cow uh, which looks very like Dark Knight uh, Returns which is the Frank Miller graphic novel I got the feeling that there's got, that that's kind of the tack they're taking with the character um, so if Batman if there is a Batman standalone film following it uh, it's quite likely it'll follow that format of a retired Batman who's coming back on the scene at an older age and the idea of having a female Robin as a partner of him Great idea. I think that will work Absolutely. Well. And of course, for a lot of other people, they would recognize her maybe from the Hunger Games. I can't say I remember who she played in that. Presumably one of the children being killed and slaughtered <laughs> by society. But also, I remember she was the young girl in Contact That's right, with yeah. Jodie Foster, which was a great... I love that film. I haven't seen it in a long time now, so I still probably think I do love that film. But um, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, she was uh, in contact as well. Yeah, no, no, I'm I'm really intrigued by the idea. I, you know, I think there's there's lots you can do with the character of Robin. I'm 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 excited to do, see whatever somebody does with it. It'd be nice to see Robin back. Absolutely. So I think with that we can move on to the review of episode two of Gotham. Selena Kyle. Yeah. Name? Ma'am, there's been a mistake. I'm not meant to go upstate. I need to talk to James Gordon. He's a cop. You'll be allowed a phone call when you get upstate. Name? I need to talk to him now. He'll thank you for it. Not happening. Name? Bite me, pig arena. So we're on to episode two of Gotham, Selena Kyle. In this episode, someone is kidnapping homeless kids from the street. Uh, nobody seems to care until one of the street kids gets thrown to a window of a cafe, which is under the protection of the GCPD, and then a homeless veteran is killed. So it's up to Jim and Harvey to find out who's responsible for it. Uh, we also see young Selena Kyle, who's escaped the clutches of the child snatchers twice. And really, the story is about will she escape Mayor Aubrey James's plan to rid Gotham of petty crime? Exactly. Yeah, so and what did you think of the episode overall? I kind of really liked it. I thought... It was one of those things where it's an episode that is coming straight off a pilot that um, was done back in April, you know, March, April, May kind of time, if not maybe slightly earlier, yeah. where they didn't even know whether it would get picked up. Bruno Heller, Danny Cannon, yet they had said they had plotted the path of where it would go for a 10, 13 episode arc yep. for this. Um, but for me, I thought it did a really good job. I thought it now teed up Selena Kyle in a very interesting way, with very little dialogue, um, until quite late on into that episode. Mm -hmm. It also just developed the characters, the big partnership of Jim and Harvey Bullock again, as well as laying the foundations of an intriguing new threat above and beyond the mobsters, 
but another threat that we don't quite know yet in the form of the Dollmaker. I think maybe some people might have an issue with Doug and Patty in the show, mm-hmm. um, who were the child snatchers. I kind of quite like them, and actually I thought they were they were played very light, but there was an incredible amount of darkness and um, threat coming from them, because uh, Patty used her gun quite a few times, as did Doug. <laughs> so, I mean, it was that element of violence with a light-heartedness, or almost a kind of a, a comic-y element to it, which made it sort of even more frightening, really, for me. But I liked the episode overall. I thought it introduced, as I say, Selena Kyle. It developed the characters that we saw from episode one, with the exception of Ivy Pepper. And it was a nice little investigative procedural, which provided foundation, a starting point for, I think, maybe, or the possibility of a bigger menace. Yeah, and for me, I think the the one thing I really enjoyed about it is, is that they lived up to their promise. They stripped it back a little bit. They took out a lot of references to various characters that live in the city. Um, the central investigation piece is only really, when you look at the episode of what, 42 minutes, it's probably about 21, 20 minutes of the episode is the investigation piece. And the rest of it is building out the world of Gotham and yeah, building out the definitely. characters that we saw. There's a little bit too much, when you watch the episodes one week after the other, there's a little bit too much repetition of some of the stuff you learned a week ago. Um, in in my head, but that's probably just to do with as we, as you say, it's been a couple of months for them in in the development between episode one and episode two. This stuff will bed down after a couple of weeks. I just want to repeat it in case you missed the first episode. This is the stuff that we need to catch you up on. Um, but overall, really good, really good episode. Yeah, a I, really good episode. I do think it's really odd that it's called Selena Kyle, and realistically, you only see her on screen once before the thirty minute mark, and then she speaks for the first time after thirty minutes. So it's really gone through. Two complete, almost two complete shows before you've heard one word out of Selena Kyle's mouth. Yet this episode's called Selena Kyle. Um, thought that was quite interesting. I'm kind of liking that though. Yeah. In many respects. Absolutely. Silence is golden, especially when you're a child. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, I think for a, for Selena Kyle, and like in this episode, she's called Cat. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very much the genesis of the Catwoman. She calls herself Cat. Mm-hmm. Um, she actually doesn't call herself Selena Kyle. It's very much that she is an observer, a watcher, and she does that to gain knowledge and, to an extent, a bit of an upper hand. It's it's that she uses it then, what she's viewed, what she's seen, to her advantage yeah. in, in a number of elements that we'll see through through the episode. Absolutely, absolutely. So where do you want to begin, I suppose, the, the beginning? Let's do that. <laughs> we are absolutely 100% radical on this show. <laughs> and we will certainly challenge all orthodoxies by starting right at the beginning. And as always, we will spoil everything about this episode. <laughs> so if you haven't seen it, go watch it. I'm sure, you've, I'm sure you've watched. There's no point in you listening to us if you haven't. Um, so we start out with Bruce. Yeah, burning again. himself. Yeah. A bit of uh, self-mutilation, mm-hmm. self-harm. Which immediately is kind of like, because of what happened in the last episode, you kind of go, eh, stop, you know, and you kind of go, where's Alfred? And in comes Alfred. And I think this is quite a short scene, but it very much sets up elements later on in the episode that we'll come to Mm -hmm. um, between Alfred, Jim Gordon, and the young Bruce Wayne. But he's essentially the... In a slightly disturbing way, but it's he's testing himself, and he's playing, I suppose, chicken 
and gradually lowering the palm of his hand towards the flame of a candle. Yeah, yeah, seeing how seeing how far he can push it before he screams or before he cries or yeah, it's quite interesting. But I think the more interesting part of that scene is really Alfred's reaction to it. Um Alfred hasn't been a parent before. He's in the employ of of the Waynes when when uh, when they die and now he's left taking care of a child and his first reaction is to give him a slap and call him a stupid boy. Um that's a reaction that I probably would have because I don't have kids. Um, so yeah. I can see Alfred's reaction, but it's not a great parenting style, uh, I suppose. It's Bruce having his own battles within himself and what he's feeling, his trauma. And now he's doing this to try and say, look, I am brave. It's like saying I wasn't brave. I didn't protect my parents because that's what we kind of got from episode one. Mm. If I can burn myself and hold it there and be that strong and continue, don't feel that pain, I am becoming stronger. I am be- becoming more resolute and mm-hmm. would be able to um, defend myself again or Alfred or other people that he knows and cares about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's yeah, really good scene, obviously. Um, but we kind of get into the, the overall arc of the show, the central investigation piece pretty quickly after this. We get introduced to the two new characters, which is Lily Taylor and Frank Wally, playing Patty and... Doug, Doug, uh, the two child snatchers. So these guys are about as scary as the child catcher from uh, from um, Chitty Chitty, Chitty, Chitty Bang Bang. Bang. Yeah. yeah, it's that element of to encourage children towards them. They're being all friendly mm-hmm. and almost childlike in themselves That's to get true. elicit that response. And then, in a flash, in an absolute heartbeat, she starts um, pricking them with a needle. Yeah, it's obviously got some kind of drug that knocks them out. I love the politeness of the two characters. I think that's really interesting and played in a bunch of scenes throughout the episode. There's no cursing from them at all, even in a really stressful situation. It's very polite. Um, and as you say, the weapon of choice really is a needle. A gun is only used uh, at specific moments when nothing else could be used. Um, but yeah, particularly the no cursing piece, I think that's that's really well played. It's, it's oh shucks or uh, oh dear or you're not playing fair um, kind of idea, as you say, quite childlike. Um, and it's basically they have stolen one of the mayor's homeless outreach trucks mm-hmm. um, as part of his program. And they're rounding up uh, homeless orphans that at this moment in time, we're not entirely sure why. Mm. But it kind of goes slightly wrong. Selena Kyle's there. She sees all this going down mm-hmm. and she escapes, as does. And we're introduced then to Mackie, um, one of the other street uh, orphans. Played by Kyle Massey. He sees, essentially, all the other kids getting uh, knocked out with this prick to the the back of the neck. And he makes a run for it. There's a homeless bum there, an ex-veteran. And he gets shot then by Doug. And in all this ensuing chaos, uh, Selena escapes. And Mackie is chased then by Doug. And Mackie gets thrown through... uh, they have a tussle, they get involved in some kind of tussle, and he gets chucked through a, a restaurant window that is being sort of protected by um, an officer in the GCPD. Yeah, yeah, just like the violence of that scene. Essentially, as you, as I said, they're really polite, the two of them, Doug and, and Patty, are really polite when they're talking to the kids. You wouldn't expect that level of violence out of, out of Doug when he throws them through the window. It's been a bit of a shocking, yeah. a shocking moment, yeah. But really good. Uh, and then Jim's called upon to uh, to visit the crime scene. Yeah, this leads to then under the same um, railway overhead pass, um, there's the body of the, the hobo. And it's really 
a great little bit of interplay between Jim and <laughs> and Harvey because Jim is ex-military as well. Um, and for Harvey, it's very much this is a homeless bum, you know. Um, let's give him three hours and then we can knock off work. Probably go drinking. Probably you know take it easy. Don't need to do anything more than that. And for Jim, this is like he's a veteran. He's a vet. Um, no, I'm not going to do this. And Harvey is no, he was a vet. Now he's a homeless bum. Yeah. Um, and I love just that interplay of the different moral worlds in which these two guys, these two detectives, live in and come from. It's not to say that Harvey Bullock isn't or doesn't have morals or loyalty, but at this moment, to him, he was an ex-serviceman who fought for his com- country. Now he's become a wino. He's not been supported by the country. He doesn't have a job. He drinks. He lives on the streets. He's now become a homeless bum, yeah. despite his um, military service. And it's just this: these different moral perspectives are really, really informative for the character. Absolutely, absolutely. I love the interplay between Jim and the, the cop who's on scene, who's essentially, you know, he's walked off to go and deal with the restaurant because the restaurant people pay him, you know, 50 a month to take care of their their protection so he's essentially the cop is running a protection racket on on the street which is which is crazy and he essentially says to him you know you're supposed to be here minding the body that's your job harvey jumps in with he's got a point answer the man and then the cop says they're under my protection i've got to go take care of them and harvey goes he's got a point jim (laughs) you're wrong jim calls him a bad cop and they get into a fight essentially so jim is having real trouble fitting in with the gcpd in this in this town he's finding real real problems um and has the same kind of problems with Harvey when they start to question Mackie about about what happened in the situation. They start having a, a big argument between the two of them uh, about how best to deal with Mackie. And I love how Harvey deals with him. We've just heard, as the audience, we've just heard Harvey's reaction to the to the veteran. But when he talks to Mackie, it's like, did you kill the homeless, exactly. the homeless veteran? He was a war veteran. He fought for this country and you've killed him. Uh, essentially, Harvey's looking for someone to pin the crime on and then what knock off for the day. Yeah. Jim's looking to investigate and find out what actually happened, get the eyewitness details, but Harvey's just looking for an easy way out. That's it. It's like Harvey's moral code is on a slider, and wherever that slider should be so that it benefits him or him doing his job successfully, that's where it will go. And in this case, he's adamant that Mackie, this guy was a vet, he fought for you, you know, tell us what you know. I mean, and then, not only that, the point that Harvey Bullock is like, I'll give you a, a clip around the the back of the head. And Jim is like, no, no beatings kind of thing. Yeah. And it's like, this again becomes another point where any means to, to the end. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing I will say, and it's something I forgot to mention for episode one about Harvey Bullock, is despite the ambiguity in his moral compass and or his ethical compass, whatever you want to call it, he does have loyalties. And that might be to the bottle, mm-hmm. <laughs> his Pepto-Bismol. It could be down to um, other factors. But one of the things was that as soon as Fish Mooney had strung Jim up in the first episode, mm-hmm. he had a loyalty to being a cop and to that whole 
loyalty of partners together, even if they have got differences of view. But now he showed a loyalty to Jim by going back and trying to get him out of there and ultimately being strung up with him. It was a, a loyalty that, that I didn't mention in the first episode, but I thought was really quite important. It informs the character that despite this sliding scale of morality or this pick and choosing of what's moral at any given moment, mm-hmm. he also does have some grounded and fundamentals that are this is what I need to do in this situation, yeah. uh, which came out certainly in episode one. So despite all these um, fights that occur in the first few minutes between Jim and, and Harvey, um, you kind of think there's maybe a background loyalty that they're just not willing to talk about, but they push one another Absolutely. an awful lot, and yeah, it's they're, yeah. they're not getting on. Yeah, I like it, you know, with Harvey going, you know, if I did want to beat this kid, it's my prerogative. He's a big guy. He could take a couple of punches, you know, it's uh, which totally twists Jim against him. They get into a fight and we get a really early Joker watch this week. Hey, watch the shoes, clown. So, yeah, watch the shoes, clown, is the uh, is our Joker watch for this week. Is that are we stretching it? We are stretching it <laughs> immensely. That's all I could find. But maybe the Joker came from the GCPD. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe, maybe. But probably not. And we're probably, <laughs> yeah, we are stretching it Is here. Harvey the, um, the Joker? No, no, Harvey's, no, not, Harvey's the Joker. not the Joker. I can't imagine the the other detective is the Joker. Um, but certainly... Watch the shoes, clown. Shoes are very important, as we know from the first episode. Shiny yes. shoes are shiny shoes. So will they be shiny shoes? I think there was another really important line here that Harvey kind of said to Jim Gordon. With all this kind of argument going on about whether he can beat the kid, the previous arguments out. The vet, as opposed to being a homeless bum, you know, who's what prerogative to have or not to have. Harvey Bullock goes straight to the point here and he goes, how now so righteous to Jim Gordon? He says, it was only yesterday you put a bullet into a man's head. Mm. It's this growing and tension that the audience and deceit that the audience knows about that Jim didn't do that. But for Harvey, why are you telling me I can't clip a this kid over the back of the head why are you telling me we can't just simply knock this case off in three hours by saying it's a homeless bum um when yesterday you were killing people or so he thinks that's really um interesting it might be is harvey beginning to suspect that what jim is saying to him now doesn't fit with someone who put a bullet in oswald cobblebot's head Mm -hmm. maybe i don't think so i think that might be too early but he's making that point that why are you being so opposite, so moral, uh, and dishing that out, being so righteous when you did what Carmine Falcone asked uh, of us, and you were coming into the circle and playing the game. I'm going to introduce Sarah Essen, Captain Sarah Essen, and her her version of the truth. Or her, yeah. <laughs> Sabrina Guevara is really good in this in this role as the as the captain of uh, of the GCPD. But again, she seems to know that he murdered Oswald Cobblepot and is kind of going, I thought you were with the program. I can't tell you to break the law, but this is Gotham. If you don't bend, you break. 
Um, really, great line, great really, line, really good line. Um, but again, who's not corrupt in this city? <laughs> exactly, and I like the, I like the other the other thought that comes out. It's like, why would someone take these kids? They're they're not cute girls. If they were cute girls, I'd understand if they're that they're being taken. And that's you know a whole conversation that Harvey has with with uh, S, and he doesn't understand the crime because it doesn't fit with his perception of what a crime is. Um, well, exactly. Or from what they know has been going on previously, that young, pretty kids have been pinched, pr- mm-hmm. uh, mainly girls. But I just love the fact that in Captain Essen here, we have someone who, she is just being a boss. Mm-hmm. There's not any interplay that, uh, I don't respect what you're saying to me because you're a woman, mm-hmm. or anything like this. There's none of that kind of dynamic. It's, she's the boss. She tells Harvey what to do. Harvey takes that on the chin or he just respects that and and gets on with it because they're kind of part of the same kind of outfit, really. Um, That that politics. And Captain Essen here is playing that politics. She doesn't want to rock the boat. She says no press, um, no um, follow-up on the Arkham connection. You know, this is to be kept quiet. Go about, do your investigation. Mm -hmm. Arkham's been closed for 10 years i think harvey says she corrects him and says 15 i don't know whether that would be important i don't know why they had that little correction there but it's maybe that might be important Mm. i don't know but she wants none of this to get out that kids are going missing and so on and this political game gets exposed a bit later on with the mayor um actually with mayor audbury so she's a savvy lady and she knows what she's doing, and I think the lads, Jim and Harvey, know that she knows what she's doing, and they don't try and undermine her yeah. in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like we find out the Arkham connection with the drugs, essentially, because we have another little guest appearance from Corey Michael Smith's Edward Nigma as he appears at the window and gets his own theme tune, really, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> as he comes in, he's a, he, he again stands out by his uh, by his abnormality. He's a, he's a strange little character, this one. Um, I do like him, though. I, I, I said last week I have to give it a couple of episodes to, to know whether I'll like the character. This time I definitely like uh, like Edward Nygma, um, and I, I can tell it very quickly. He seems like he's stalking Jim Gordon now, though. Yeah, there was that look in the first episode where he kind of said, okay, you answered one of my riddles and you didn't fob me off, but you answered it. And I'm a clever guy. I work in forensics. You also must be a clever guy. You can understand the riddles I'm putting to you. Um, But he essentially, it's all to do with a drug that's found in the kid's system. Yeah. Um, ATP, is it? ATP, yeah. And Edward makes the connection that this is something that they used to use in Arkham to put down the more the more aggravated patients that are there. But again, you know, he, he provides that piece of information and Essen goes, thanks, get out. Uh, Harvey go, Harvey doesn't even look at him. But he waits for Jim to give him the nod. There's definitely a little attraction there or something between yeah. himself and Jim. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out, as I said before. So one of the nice little things about the meeting of Captain Essen here is that then she goes go and ask Fish um, if she's still speaking to us or to Harvey Bullock given the events of episode one Mm. Um, because all this was taking place on on her turf and what this then leads us into are twofold Um, again for me one of the standout scenes of um, this episode were it has the 
polite and threatening collision with Fish Mooney of Falcone and Fish Mooney's bar. And that leads on to Fish and Harvey and Jim discussing the case as part of the investigation as to where these kids have gone. Um, and that that's a really nice kind of completing the circle of coming back to Fish Mooney. I think this scene between Falcone, um, played by John Doman, mm. and Fish Mooney, Jada Pinkett Smith, in her bar is really good. I love this scene. It's um, so powerful. And it, it's just simply... Men who are about to die are very honest. It's important to listen, um, is what Falcone says to, to Fish Mooney after he's walked in, sat down. Fish Mooney's gotten a bottle of wine. It's this notion of your little, odd little fellow, he's a very perceptive guy, was Penguin. And he mm-hmm. calls him Penguin. And it's this threatening of, I kind of know what you're up to. He doesn't come out and blatantly accuse her doesn't do anything like that it's all subtle it's all understated it's all this understated nod to look i know what's going on and now you know that i know and you need to just pull back otherwise you're going to be in trouble and he essentially as a surrogate uses fish mooney's lover yeah um as the punch bag rather than her or say butch gilsian yeah, absolutely. Um, I have to say, as you said, um, Carmel Falcone character played by John Doman is is knocking out of the park every time he's on screen. He's such a great presence. Uh, he does confirm in this scene that he's that essentially him and his men are the ones that took Oswald Cobblepot, um, beat him and gave gave him to Jim Gordon to be shot. That's essentially what he's confirming by this scene. Uh, he talked to him before before Penguin was killed, essentially. Um, and yeah, he takes he takes the beating out on Laszlo, who's uh, who's the lover of. Well, sorry, she, can, she specifically confirms she's the boy he, uh, that um, Fish keeps around for exercises. Laszlo. <laughs> uh, there's been some discussion about Laszlo that that's, push-ups. Uh, some push-ups, exactly. <laughs> um, there's some discussion about Laszlo, though he is uh, Professor Pig from the comic books. Um, it's Laszlo Valentine is the character's name. Yeah. Who's, who's Professor Pig in the comics? He covers his face with a mask and distorts his victims to make them look perfect. So potentially the beating that he's just gotten from yeah. Falcone is what it's turns significant, yeah. and he's been disfigured. Absolutely, yeah. I think as well. Falcone reiterates that point that he made so powerfully in episode one of that Wayne and Falcone, those two houses, were pillars of um, of the same city of Gotham, and that now that the Waynes have fallen, that they've gone out of balance and are in flux. He says the same phrase that. Um, Oswald Cobblepot said to Jim Gordon, you know, that there is a war coming. Uh, this idea that in speaking with Oswald, he's gotten the same response that Oswald gave to Jim as he was about or he thought he was about to get shot by Jim. So uh, so it's kind of a, a re-emphasis of that point. Um, and we get the first um, acknowledgement of the other big, the number two crime family with the Moroni house. Mm-hmm. The House of Moroni, um, and this idea that he senses a weakness that Penguin or Oswald Cobblepot told Falcone that Moroni senses this weakness. Yeah, and and delivers that fantastic line, which is, you know, I know it was essentially I know it was you, Fish. It's I never sleep, lose sleep over my enemies, meaning uh, Moroni, 
uh, it's my friends that keep me up at night, which yeah. is just a really, Great. really good scene. Yeah. Um, just one of the points you you, you made it there, uh, the, having the war, having the war coming essentially is, is what is the kind of theme of this scene. Just before, um, something I noticed instantly because I'm a big fan of this band, uh, Portishead. Um, there's a song that's playing in the background just before Jim and uh, and Harvey arrive. Uh, Fish has kicked everyone out of the bar, and there's a song that's playing by Portishead called Roads. The lines that are playing are actually quite key. It's just in the background. It's only because I know the band that I recognized it yeah. instantly. And the lines that are playing is essentially there's a war to fight. Um, it's the war is coming essentially is, is what the lines that are playing i'm sure that's hugely significant for whoever chose the music no exactly it's again another th- thematic um sort of emphasis of this war this impending conflict or confrontation of these crime families um and it's all finished off his his um guards have beaten up laszlo mm-hmm. you can see Fish Mooney. Fury. Yeah. Absolutely furious, holding back the anger and the fury, which comes out really nicely in another scene as well. But I will say that scene where she shouts and kicks everybody out of the bar. Firstly, it comes about two seconds after Falcone has turned on his heels and walked out, so he's probably in the entrance to the building when she yeah. shouts at everybody to get out <laughs> so it was a bit probably too, heard it was yeah, a little bit too a little dramatic. bit too soon yeah. but it's preceded by a fantastic line or another one from this this meeting of the mobster don and his subordinate fish mooney thank you for being honest it means a lot to me it shows wisdom and humility it just sounds like it could actually have come from Godfather, yeah. and like it's a really nice line, and a lot of John Doman's lines are really good lines. Um, but yeah, she throws everyone out, and she is still seething, and it it goes to this really nice scene where she's with her um, number two, Butch Gilsian, mm-hmm. where she is venting her anger, and she wants to kill Falcone with her own hands and indeed take a huge damn bite out of him with use her teeth and Butch kills him and says really great line well I'll hold your shoes then (laughs) (laughs) absolutely Uh, you know that is is really good I really really like that Um, that scene it's really really enjoyable and then we have the whole meeting again of Fish with Jim and Harvey as mm-hmm. part of then the ongoing investigation. Yep. And again, this is a really nice little confrontation between the two. They're kind of feeling their way around one another after the events of being strung up at the, the, the slaughterhouse. Yep. Um, and to just see whether they can still trade with her. They can get info on the case. Um, and we kind of start to to get this this whole idea that there obviously used to be a market for good-looking girls mm-hmm. um, and that she makes the the play to Jim and Harvey that she's aware that it may be an overseas buyer who will have anything, not just these good-looking girls that um, used to be part of the market or part of the trade in the past, but now it's any child yeah anyone young and healthy i think is the specific line which which kind of explains why the bum was killed because he's not young and healthy um yeah you know. and that this buyer is international 
and potentially suggests a larger presence behind Patty and Duck. We get introduced to a lot of right-hand men and women, um, you know, working on behalf of other people uh, in this show. You know, there's Butch Gilzean, there was Oswald Cobblepot, even Fish Mooney is a right-hand um, woman to Falcone's mm. uh, mobster organization. Yeah. And here we now see that behind the politeness and the deviousness and the evilness of Patty and Doug, there is someone telling them to do it. They're being ordered to do this. Um, and we get a few more bits from the investigation, but we also um, get a few more insights into Jim Gordon as well. Um, this idea, you surprise me, a straight arrow like yourself, but you're just a sinner like everyone else. Yeah. Like, she knows... She's aware he should be on plan, um, as has been said previously, um, that he has shot Oswald Cobblepot. And she, in herself, thinks Oswald Cobblepot didn't get enough pain yeah. in his death. Yeah, but she's essentially repeating what she said in the first episode to, to Jim. She's essentially saying that she wanted to see the fire in his belly. She wanted to see that come out. And it looks like he just came on plan really quickly. He shot Oswald. He's now... He's now taking direction from Harvey. He's now taking direction from Essen in her mind. Um, so she's kind of disappointed. She says, I'm a little sad about that. It's quite, a, quite, a, quite an interesting line. Um, but yeah, they've come up with some with some ideas of who could be providing the drugs for um, for these two child snatchers, essentially. The three different organizations that Jim's come up with. There's uh, Wellzine, Drac Attack, and Quill and Pharma are the three ones that he's come up with. But because of Essen's point, he can't investigate much further on these unless he has a bit of impetus behind them and he talks to Barbara about it his, his girlfriend his supportive structure essentially but Barbara doesn't take it the way that Jim was expecting he was no. expecting to have a bit of a conversation at home just to let a little steam off and Barbara goes and calls the press um, we start to see a little bit of tension here mm. I mean am I right here yeah. I can, a little bit of tension between this couple um, sort of the real starting threads of tension between Barbara Keane played by Aaron Richards, um, and Jim Gordon. To an extent, a little bit of distrust as well, maybe, mm. you could say, because they're having this conversation, they've gotten takeout, and it's like, I can't believe everything is so corrupt. Children missing, but you can't do anything about it. You can't even put the pressure on to tip off the press. Mm. And as you say, Barbara changes all that, goes over and phones up the Gazette, leaves a really short bit of uh, news that makes into the, the Gotham Gazette the next day but she goes and it's then this is really telling for for Jim. They kind of have this back and forth of was that the right thing to do? Jim yes it was the right thing to do but don't do it again and we kind of even here just get that hint that Jim Gordon yes might be this moral centre to the show to an extent or at least of that partnership between Jim and Harvey Bullock, but put up against, say, someone like Barbara Keane, mm. he actually displays um, this willingness to bend the rules or to be subservient to the bigger picture, yeah. the bigger plan, whether it's even just that, well, I will show that I took him out, even though he didn't, because maybe he just can't kill like that mm. after serving in the army. But in this case, he's willing. It takes his girlfriend, his fiance to phone the press. He's not willing to do that. And that shows another 
side to Jim Gordon, I think, which really adds a, another layer onto his character. Yeah, and I kind of wonder how it's going to impact him. You know, it, it, this is this has been his confidant for all this time working on the GCPD. He has told her about cases. He's told her about little things here and there. But this is another step where she's shutting him down, essentially. She's saying to him, if you tell me something about this and I can do something about it, I will. I'll fight your battle for you that you're not going to fight. So will he start to distrust her a bit more? Will he start to, or will he stop giving her information about cases now that he now that he's seen what happens? Uh, if he does, she's a very strong woman. She's going to do whatever she wants to do with it, you know. Um, but really interesting, um, which takes us on to the actual investigation again. So, um, so this, the heat gets on to Essen now. Yeah, which um, I thought was a bit of a, a bit of a callback to Gotham Central once yeah. again. I thought there was a little, there's a, a really good connection there between uh, between a whole arc that's within Gotham Central where the press are getting. Uh, information out of the GCPD without the captain of of the GCP giving it out, and she starts to get really angry about it. I thought that was a really good little yeah. callback to that in itself. Um, one of the pieces I know we've we've seen people talk about it before. There's a there's a huge queue scene in the sky uh, of of the um, of Gotham uh, in the skyline of Gotham during the investigation. Yeah, uh, I've mentioned there were three different pharma companies. One's Wellsine, Drac Attack, and the other one's Quillen. Uh, the queue that's in the sky is directly above. Quillen, uh, so that's my feeling. Is that the queue is just for Quillen. Loads of people have been talking about it, saying that this is a crossover with Arrow. Uh, that that's actually Queen uh, Industries is what that queue in the Queen Consolidated. Queen Consolidated. Yeah. That's the one. Um, that that's that's what the queue means. Um, yep. No, I've seen that make, too, and um, it would make sense as Quillen Farmer uh, within that scene because you then you see the green neon queue. You come down. You have green farmer with the with the green cross of a of a pharmacist mm-hmm. um as jim and harvey turn up at quillen farmer's supplies where quillen is there himself and we see where these kids who are being held there like their tip off is right mm-hmm. um that they're in this basement in this um this store this pharmaceutical store there's a huge shaft with green at the bottom of it and mm-hmm. green all the way down. This huge um, pit, presumably leading to the sewers, which is really interesting because the first thing you ask is, well, what's down there? Absolutely. Is it just the sewers or is there maybe a killer croc <laughs> reference here? Yeah. Um, given that, even though Quillen is very much concerned about the heat that could come up on him from the cops... That he goes, well, I can get rid of them really easily yeah. and quickly. Yeah, he obviously can. Might feed them to the crocodiles in the in the sewers. Um, yeah, but we have our other scene here with um, with Patty and, and Doug as well. Um, so they're they're here being really polite, trying to tell Quillen, "We now need the children. We've got your money for you." And Quillen increases the price like any other corrupt person in Gotham. If you can get something from, why not get a bit more? Um, and once again, it's the politeness of. But, but wait a minute, you're not being fair here. And then the pin comes out. She kills the guard, or she knocks out the guard, yeah. uh, and is about to go for Quillen. He's like, we're having a business discussion here. He thinks it's a business negotiation. These guys aren't for business negotiations. They made a plan. They made a deal. They wanted followed through. Uh, again, it just speaks to the the you know deceptive um, aggression between for these two characters, I suppose. And I thought it was a really good scene, really, really good uh, piece for those two characters and those two bad guys. It was really good. And just one quick thing was that we have now in this storeroom at least 
two of the people that I think it was just shortly after San Diego Comic Con, and there was a whole new montage of um well, from the show, mm-hmm. and it shows Frank Wally, um, by the uh, shelves in in this scene, and mm-hmm. um, it showed the old man Quillen's um sort of helper yep. who who goes down to try and take out uh the kids quickly at when the police i.e. Jim and Harvey Bullock arrive at this scene um, he's there and then there was also the speculation of um, the magpie from a, a lady who was on stage at Fisher's uh, club yep. um, sporting a kind of a mask like you get in Arrow mm-hmm. and um, there was this speculation that the lady on the stage at Fishers was the magpie, that Frank Worley's character um, could be Mr. Freeze um, or even a Hugo Strange. This is what we were speculating at the time. Yeah, I was going to say that. You said this, there was speculation. We speculated. So. Yeah, and then the, <laughs> the old man that maybe, whilst we didn't know, but maybe he was a Hugo Strange or, or something like that. But then, ultimately... The lady who was the magpie was essentially the house band or the band on stage at yeah. Fish Mooney's Club. Yeah. The likelihood that she's going to be the magpie pretty is unlikely. pretty unlikely. It reminded me of the um, five, six, seven, eights from Kill Bill, the, the, uh, yeah. the band on stage. Yeah. But then Frank Worley's character is Doug, mm-hmm. the child snatcher. He's not Mr. Freeze in the slightest. Unless um, he's been renamed Doug Freeze, I don't think so. Doug Freeze, maybe, or uh, <laughs> Hugo Doug Strange. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? Um, so that speculation was completely wrong as well. So what we're saying is we will always apologise if we got something wrong. And then <laughs> the old man, Quillen's worker, his, um, his helper, well, he's just a man. Um, or maybe not. Just a man here's another bit of speculation. A sewer. Yeah, here's another bit of speculation. He gets shot when Jim and Harvey come running in to investigate um you know the disappearance of the kids mm-hmm. and who you know where were these uh, drugs the ATP um sold uh, and who to and in the whole confusion as Doug and Patty are there there's a huge shootout uh, this old man Quillen's worker goes down to get rid of the kids Jim Gordon shoots him and he falls down that shaft into the pit down mm-hmm. into the sewers. So, will he become anyone? Wild speculation here, John. I'm guessing is is the, no. you have an answer. <laughs> What's your wild speculation? Here? Maybe he becomes something. Okay. I don't know. I don't actually know because we've just kind of said that maybe they get rid of them because it's Killer Croc. Yeah, he could become Killer, Killer Croc, mm. but I think he's a bit too old. Mm. Um, I'm not too sure that fits with. Killer Croc and and his background. Yeah, he gets shot. He goes down a big pit. He might reemerge as something else. You never know. You never know. No, don't count me. And why not take one wild bit of wrong speculation <laughs> and replace it with another potentially wild and gorgeous and potentially wrong bit of speculation? <laughs> Absolutely, I totally agree. Totally agree. So now that they found the kids. This is essentially the end of the investigation for some reason. They they they, they no longer go to investigate who. The child snatchers where Jim wants to proceed with it, but we suddenly get this piece where Mayor Aubrey James is standing in front of the press with right now we've we've uh, found the kids. It's all over now and makes a plan to 
essentially banish all the street kids from the city to uh, to stop petty crime. <laughs> um, it's another political move from from the mayor. Exactly. Um, to stop petty crime in a city where people get shot in the head every day. You know, it's it's you know most of the wallets that are stolen in the city are stolen by children, so we must banish the children out of the Except city. Except the pretty ones. <laughs> no, I love that line. That's now, really is funny. that a connection to the fact that only pretty ones used to go missing? Maybe, maybe. To foster homes. <laughs> Who knows? Potentially, potentially. But yeah, I mean, essentially, whilst Doug and Patty escape, this is like, right, this is done and dusted. We've got the kids back. We needn't go any further. Yeah. Um, and... It's a really odd situation, yeah, uh, to to see because Jim is chomping at Absolutely. the bit. It's a nice little toe to toe between him and Aubrey James, where he essentially tells him, you know, I, I see that you're using the child catcher to uh, to lock up children without any trial, you know. And uh, Aubrey's kind of going like any po- like any politician. He answers him saying, "I value your feedback." Essentially, <laughs> you know, uh, he's not going to take it on board, but okay, you can give whatever feedback. I don't care. And Captain Essen refers to Jim as. Our firebrand on the force. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, here's the guy who says the things that we shouldn't really say. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he says them, but doesn't necessarily follow through with them. It's kind of the hint that I got from, from that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's... Um, they're brought into custody, and all these children then start to get rounded up, including Selena Kyle, onto uh, buses and so yeah. on. Yeah, but I think this is kind of a good moment for us then, just to explore some of the penguin elements that have been um, in the show as yes. well. Yes, because and we're allowed to call them penguin. Aren't we? Well, that's true. Um, <laughs> because Oswald did r- get reborn out of the river. Yeah. Yep. Um, John asked Robin Lord Taylor uh, last week. Uh, I'm gonna just say it again because it's quite cool. Um, John asked Robin Lord Taylor last week, "Is there a point when?" when the penguin mantle is taken on board, is going to be taken on board by uh, by the Oswald Cobblepot character. And we've been specifically told that that point was when he arose out of the water and slaughtered the fishermen at the end of last week's episode, of, of the first episode. That's the point when Robin Lord Taylor says he is now taking on the mantle of the penguin. He's beginning to go, I will become the penguin. He might not like the name, which is evident from <clears throat> first scene we see the it. first scene really early on where he... Well, shoves a bottle <laughs> into the neck of uh, one of the the kids that have picked him up and are driving him to wherever. Yeah, and um, they laughingly say, "You look like a penguin." Essentially, yeah, yeah. It's really that scene as well. You know, you see a intelligent guy who's going, "I've learned my lessons. I'll be back stronger." Mm-hmm. I, I, foolish arrogance led me astray. You know, he, it's someone who is like he's been waiting for this moment all the time. And a bit like with Fish Mooney, just went too early, too quickly, because he'd been waiting for it for so long. But he's learned that lesson. Um, but his penchant for violence when called Penguin hasn't um, subsided just yet. Absolutely. I must say I love the writing for uh, for Robin Lord Taylor here, I love some of the lines he says. The, uh, the forgive me, I'm somewhat dishevelled. The temporary setback, I assure you, it's not how anybody would speak except for this weird character. Um, we get to meet his mother, and you can kind of understand why he would speak like yeah, that. Yeah, where it exactly. comes from, you know. Um, this is 
one of the other great scenes in this this episode is when Renny Montoya, Christmas Allen go to investigate um, Penguin's disappearance, um, and they're questioning Oswald's well, Gertrude Cappleput. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the correction to Christmas yeah. Allen's. And we're introduced to a sublime Carol Kane here as Gertrude Cappleput, um, being questioned by. Certainly um, two of my favorite detectives in the show, um, René Montoya and Christmas Allen. But they have a really nice little interplay that builds on from the pilot as well, where they kind of go, he must have been done in by the mob, Mm -hmm. even the police. Um, And Montoya just doesn't want the people that did that to get away with it Mm -hmm. at all. And I loved her little little phrase and she goes Oswald was a good snitch (laughs) this idea that actually this is one of our really good snitches who comes to us and helps us with our case I love that Mm -hmm. she corrects Christmas Allen Andrew Stewart Jones when he responds to Gertrude Cavill put you know we're GCPD and Montoya just chimes in with but honest I love that and it's really distinguishing these two guys from the homicide unit that Jim and Harvey Bullock are in, yeah. as we saw in episode one. It's just further making that separation and distinction. But the, the interplay between these two detectives and Oswald's mum, uh, Gertrude, is is really, really good. It's fab. felt like a little bit of an homage to uh, Tim Burton's Batman, essentially, where it's uh, where she looks like something out of a Tim Burton, uh, the Tim Burton world oh, yeah, that, big time. that Alan and Montoya walked in on. Um, I love the assertion from her that it's some woman is, that is that has uh, taken her boy uh, away from her. Technically speaking, she could be talking about fish, but um, but yeah. it is some woman that's taken her boy away from her. Um, yeah, and that's it's really interesting because it plays into what we're going to discuss a bit in, in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but, but I like uh, Victoria Cartagena's response. It's like you think it's a woman? Are you sure? <laughs> Are you sure he didn't seem like the woman type to me (laughs) yeah (laughs) but it's that connection as well it's that you see maybe why he speaks like that Mm -hmm. you know a mother feels these things it's kind of saying you know there's this connection this maybe overly bearing mother Mm -hmm. and to oswald in the past and that's why he is so well dressed and she remarks on that well he's obviously been kidnapped or he's gone because he wouldn't leave without his good suits he always likes to be impeccably dressed yes um there's an obvious sense of or whiff of old money here Mm um i'm kind of expecting her her to just dust the place in white talc (laughs) or something like that she goes it's a woman she's quite definite that Mm -hmm. the reason for Oswald's predicament is it's a woman. Some pent-up slut has him in her clutch. Yep. Is that Fish Mooney? It more than likely, mm-hmm. given what we know already, but possibly something else. Yeah. Given, I, I think she's being the overbearing mother who just assumes that the reason why her child would stay out all night is because oh, he's finally found himself a nice young lady. But. Uh, but she doesn't particularly agree in the nice young lady choice uh, for him. But yeah, love the reaction of, of Victoria Cartagena to that. Really funny. And I like the fact that the next time we see Oswald, she's just commented on the fact that his appearance is it's, it's <laughs> perfect for him. And the next time we see him, he's essentially stolen the clothes off 
one of the kids who was in the car. He's still in the, the preppy jumper and T-shirt he's wearing and underneath his suit jacket, essentially, um, when he goes to get himself a... Uh, a place to stay now. His his no his his first hidey hole. His first uh, his first penguin cave. Yeah, so. which is a trailer. It's yeah. a trailer home. Um, and he he has a hostage, which is the kid that he didn't bottle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> essentially, yeah. and we kind of get re- treated to a real nice montage. Not montage. A collage of Oswald and what he's thinking about. Mm. It's probably. It's one of those things that I think as a fan, as an avid viewer, as a podcaster, you really want to see in a show. Um, it starts off with him. It's nighttime. The mm-hmm. moonlight's coming through the trailer. Oswald's on his back looking up at the ceiling. You see this shadow on the floor where you get the distinct kind of that pointy, pokey nose um, shadowed across the floor of the trailer. Yeah, it looks and like he has the fat belly. All he's missing really is the monocle and the uh, and the cigar. Exactly. Course, the um, yeah. And then we're treated to this collage of different bits of newspaper cuttings, photographs, um, just post-it notes, scrolls on all of these different items and i suppose we're gonna kind of run through them now what we yep. kind of saw yep. um which you know with the hindsight of a dvr we're able to pause so i'm so you know, happy you can pause kind of stuff. tv now it's um, great <laughs> it's brilliant let's start off with this and first of all we see the mayor we see mayor aubrey mm-hmm. and he has got a dunce cap on um swine and oink are labeled all around him mm-hmm so it's that element that's Oswald Copperpot's view of the mayor. Yeah, he's useless. He's just a he's just an idiot that sits there and and uh, he has no respect for the the law at all. Essentially, he reacts to events. He's out like we've seen with the kids. It's mm-hmm. like right now, this will help me get another few points in the polls, or let's not disturb anything. You know, Carmine runs me, whatever it might be, but. He doesn't have a clue of the wider picture going on in his own city. Mm-hmm. Is essentially what I can see that he's he's a dunce. Oink, an interesting bit of speculation again, given this whole Professor Pig thing. Yeah. I don't know, maybe not, <laughs> probably not. I kind of like the idea of Laszlo being Professor Pig, uh-huh. uh, given the modus operandi of what he does, yeah. but. I saw Oink and thought Pig, then Professor Pig comes to mind, okay. And then we go to Wayne Enterprises. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, <laughs> it's just the, the one thing I was going to say, it could just be that he's a greedy, uh, pig. A greedy yeah, pig. Yeah, maybe. That was the one thing I was I was thinking when I saw it. It just it felt a little bit like he like doesn't a... trust him, he's an idiot. He's just a greedy guy who's, who's trying to take everything he can get for himself. Yeah. That's that's the way I would, I would have seen it. Um, they're not laying down that many clues for us on that. Yeah, on maybe that. not. But, oh, God, I'm overthinking things already. Yeah, ah. yeah. you just heard Professor Pig and you, and you think he's coming, so uh, yeah. But yeah. it makes sense. He's just feathering his own nest with high office um, yeah. and but really doesn't give too much regard for the people who he who work underneath him or the people who inhabit his own city. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, but in yeah. that regard, he is a dunce. I agree with Oswald. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> um, 
so onto onto Wayne Enterprises. So mm-hmm. uh, so we have we have Bruce. We have uh, I think the the line underneath him is crying little cry baby Bruce cry baby Bruce, which I love. So last episode he said it was the poor little orphan boy that made him turn on his boss. This time he's going that little that little uh, crying child who's uh, who's just a crybaby. He should have just... has poor little rich kids, yeah. all this kind of stuff. So there's the references to the murder of Thomas and Martha Wayne. Yeah, and, and the fact that he already dislikes Bruce, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah. And then we come to um, this lying slut, mm. but n- there's no picture that you can see. Um, and my immediate thought was, well, who is this? Yeah. Is this the person that his mum ha- was talking about where it's a mum feels these things it's it's a pent up slut mm. and it's a it's another woman has brought about this predicament um, but ha- who has a connection to Wayne has a connection to Wayne but we don't know there's no picture here yeah. at all and that you can see with the mayor you can see mayor Aubrey you yeah. can see Wayne Enterprise you can see Bruce Wayne in this case it's not very obvious who this reference of to a lying mm. slut, yep. who that might be directed to, because we do get to see Fish Moon. Yep. So it might it's not her. It's not her. That, yeah. So is he talking about Selena? Is there a possibility that, that he knows that Selena Kyle has seen this? We don't know yet. There's been no connection with him showing on the TV show. Um, but I wonder if he, if he knows that Selena's seen the murder and he's calling her out. Is he making his plan potentially around her? We don't know yet. We don't know. Speculation. Speculation. Come to the picture of Jim Gordon that Oswald has, and he's got Stooge written underneath him. Yeah. yeah. Is this his opinion of Jim Gordon? Like, given the fact that he's essentially didn't kill him. Yeah. Um, he essentially saved him from death. Um, is this really his opinion? Exactly. It seems like he has no gratitude for for Gordon keeping him alive and releasing him uh, from the city. It seems he's just assuming, okay, well, this guy's definitely a pushover. He didn't kill me, so he's obviously a pushover. I'm, I'm, uh, I don't believe in this guy at all. Yeah, exactly. And then we come to Jim's partner, the uh, Harvey Bullock. Now, I, I couldn't really make it out, but I thought it was punk. Mm. I think it had punk. But it was difficult to know. That's the only thing I could really equate the the writing to. Yeah. But it had a press cutting, um, which then had police official charge, which was the charge was highlighted in yellow, and there was an exclamation maze um, that was added to the press cutting. It's this idea that Bullock really is a corrupt individual mm. who will just take the easy route. Falcone, Carmine Falcone, is with the mayor. He's taken a picture there, um, and there's words like shame around it, and um, dollar signs all around him, and Falcone is also surrounded then by images of different women with the words, which we kind of thought was leech or lech, this idea Mm. that, you know, he's he's incredibly wealthy, he's maybe a womanizer, maybe a bit of a lech. A bit of a, yeah, and a bit of a pariah on society as well. And then finally, there's fish. Um, And there's a note with simply bitch. Mm -hmm. Um, There's the knife. Um, Under butch, her right-hand man, is written killer. Um, With the quotes, gonna wipe everyone out. There is also the Queen of Spades there, which is reminiscent of 
um, is it a club? Yeah, it's kind of a, a bit of a, a, a bit of a club symbol. Um, but obviously, she's the queen of the clubs, so she's the queen of she's the queen of spades. <laughs> there's yeah. two different cards there, by the way. Um, and then um, there's actually some crime scene photographs mm. that we can make out, which are. Are they Thomas and Martha Wayne? Are they just random? Really can't make that out. But yeah. it's interesting that he would have crime scene photographs in in his uh, possession. And mm-hmm. um, one of the interesting omissions is Maroney. Yeah. Not all this kind of different mo- collage of different people in Penguin's or Oswald Cobblepot's life um, to date and how he's been treated by them. Maroney isn't there, whether because he's had no dealings with him mm-hmm. s- thus far to date, or um, he's not considering him. It'll be interesting to see how that plays yeah. out. Yeah, this is definitely the scene of Oswald making his plan to go back to Gotham. Definitely, exactly. this, is what, this is what comes across. Really interesting and great. As I said, great to have pause and rewind uh, when you have a scene like that. Definitely. Yeah, but really despite him making all these grand plans, we see him in abject failure. Um, as his whole hostage situation with this jock from one of the colleges, the prep guy, um, you know, he's obviously ransoming this guy to his mother who won't pay $10,000. It completely fails. Um, Penguin, I keep calling him Penguin, Oswald Cobblepot. I told you, Robin or Taylor said you could. Yeah, I know, but (laughs) Oswald Cobblepot is really at rock bottom i i just love the scene though it sounds like this guy this preppy guy has been doing this every weekend for beer money while he's been in college because his mother takes no heed of it and i love how it ends essentially the phone call ends with with oswald going well you know if ten thousand is too much maybe we can strike a deal <laughs> he's still trying to you know this is his first plan that he's ever taken taken on outside of gotham by, by the sounds of it, he's never been outside gotham before he's trying to do this just to get some money to build himself back up and then he tries to cut another deal with the mother, which makes her instantly hang up on him, because um, <laughs> she goes, "God, obviously this isn't a real a real ransom deal if you're trying if you're willing to negotiate downwards." And then she then he calls the uh, he calls the jock a um, what's again he calls the jock a uh, um, oh, you're a naughty little boy obviously kind of thing you know it's, <laughs> no, it's not a naughty little boy it's he, a, so he um. You must be quite the scamp. You must be quite the scamp. That's it. <laughs> um, which I love. And obviously he's going to go and kill the guy now again. One of the other side stories then is is with Alfred and uh, and Bruce. So Alfred turns up to the GCPD to ask for the help of uh, of Jim. And I love, so British of him. Uh, he says he needs some help with, uh, with young Bruce, who respects Jim Gordon. Uh, could you see me at tea time tomorrow? <laughs> which I can only imagine an American looking at. Uh, a British, uh, a British butler going. When? What's tea time? When? When's yeah. tea time? Well, it is. It, it's is it elevenses or is it a second breakfast? Or... <laughs> absolutely. As soon as he said that, like Ben McKenzie's face was absolutely played to perfection. Where it was like, or played I, to a tea, or to a tea. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, it's just perfect because it is. Okay, like I don't quite know what this tea time that you speak of is, um, you know, and it immediately brought second breakfast um, and supper yeah. to uh, from the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings exactly straight into to my mind, and it, it's this kind of notion though that, as you said before, you know, 
Alfred is finding it difficult how to deal with with Bruce and mm-hmm. uh, the young Bruce. Um, he's never been a father. Yeah. He doesn't know what to do now. He feels that Jim, even though he's never been a father either, might have some something else to say because there is some connection that Bruce Wayne has made. Um, whether it was in the crucible of just after his parents had died mm. and it was Jim who was comforting him, speaking to him, um, just like from the Nolan films, that there's that sort of association and recognition. He was his first port of safety yeah. immediately after that traumatic event um, that Alfred wants to maybe tap into that. Yeah. Um but the, I suppose the real reason why he's called then Jim as well. The, the point is that you know not only is he dealing with an orphan child, this orphan child is self harming in our in Alfred's head. Yeah, he's burning himself. He's cutting himself. Alfred says as well. Um, he's listening to rock music. <laughs> There's that scene where immediately, you know, rock music. It's a pretty good artist though. He could he could definitely do he's, his own comic. He's drawing scary pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great pictures. Is it, really the, is it the ring? It's something, yeah. It's like yeah. the ring. I think it is, yeah. Um, uh, but no, I, I can I can understand. I'm only joking Alfred's by the rock music, of course. But, <laughs> like, you know. but I can understand why Alfred is is a bit concerned about him, you know. But I like the interaction between Jim and Alfred. Al- Jim has no kids either, but when Alfred kind of goes, um, well, no, his parents left me with really specific instructions. There will be no psychiatrist dealing with this child. Um, he makes his own path, and I've got to trust in him because that's what his parents said. It gave me the question whether his parents, the Waynes left instructions because maybe they knew they were under threat. Maybe they thought it is a possibility that the two of us will be gone and Alfred will have to take over. Um, yeah, he kind of says, I trust him to choose his own course. He is, after all, a Wayne. Yeah. That must weigh heavily as well on Bruce, this notion of being a Wayne. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a, a certain thing that he must be or must portray by being a Wayne. I presume Absolutely. it's a bit like the the royal family yeah. it's that idea that okay okay i was born uh i want to just play footy and so sure. and now i'm an heir to in his case it's wayne enterprises Absolutely. and the family name you know and that must be a real burden but yeah and is is alfred the right person to guide him through those steps in life and that's kind of where we're where we're getting to here it's it's uh you know he says to he says to jim you know, it's against the rules to have a psychiatrist. And Jim kind of looks at him quizzically and just kind of says, well, you make the rules. Why, how is something against the rules and you're unhappy about it? You make those rules, you know? Um, so Jim's trying to train Alfred in being a good parent. But it's a really great scene because it really builds the relationship between Alfred and Jim. They're both army guys. They both, in a sense, would have no idea what to do here. But it's almost like they're bouncing ideas off them. It's like, as you say, Alfred goes, there will be no psychiatrist. Jim is like, it's good to talk. It's good to get these things out. Bruce responds to that with, um, you know, you were in the army, like being able to talk about what happened whilst you were at war kind of thing. Yeah, totally calls him out on the lie there, doesn't it? It's great. Yeah, and then it really builds that relationship between Alfred and the young Bruce um, and and that's all initiated and helped by Jim Gordon, yeah. where Bruce is like saying, look, I'll give money to the... I've been following your exploits, this investigation. Um, There's a very specific thing he actually says. He says, I've been following your adventures in the newspaper. 
as if Jim Gordon's adventures are essentially Bruce Wayne's comic books. Yeah. Um, you know, he's he's looking at him as a fan of what Jim Gordon's trying to do for the city, and it's a very specific set of words that, that he chooses. That is true. That, that was quite interesting. But just after a hilarious moment when he arrived into the room while Jim and Alfred were talking, uh, right up behind him, and Alfred goes, he says a word, nobody knows he's there, and Alfred goes, uh, haven't I told you not to creep up on people? That's bloody rude. Um, which is essentially going to be Batman forever is the person that yeah, just sneaks up on people exactly. forever, which I think is brilliant. Um, um, but it is this idea, this relationship between Alfred and Bruce, I think, suddenly gets enabled by by Jim. Um, mm. The offer of some money from Bruce to help with these orphan children as a result of this investigation that he's been following, this adventure for mm. him that he's been following uh, closely because Jim's been involved. And Jim just kind of looks at him and says, these kids need someone to care for them like you have. Money can't buy that or money won't buy that. And he looks up at Alfred and it's that idea that Jim recognises that caring, protective uh, relationship that Alfred would have and can have and will have ultimately with the young Bruce Wayne to guide him. Um, and he's kind of saying to, to Bruce Wayne, look, you have a lot in Alfred, despite your parents' tragic murder, mm-hmm. that other people don't even have. They don't have someone to care for them. Absolutely. And he makes that point. And I think that's a really great enabling thing for Alfred and Bruce's relationship and for those whole three characters. It's a really good little scene. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And the other thing that Jim brings out is essentially as I, as I said Alfred thinks that the boy's self-harming um, Jim hears the story from Alfred and thinks he's self-harming essentially Bruce is the one that kind of goes look I, I, I understand your concern but I'm not self-harming at all I, I'm totally in control of this I'm just testing, I'm testing my own limits but thanks for your concern um, Alfred would never have known that that's what Bruce was trying to do that he's not trying to endanger himself He's trying to see where his limits are. That's a very different thing in Bruce's mind. Uh, and we'll see how that guidance comes from Jim and, and from uh, and from Alfred in the future. But, uh, but yeah, really, really good scene. Really like uh, like how they're bringing Devin Masseuse in and how they're bringing uh, Sean Pershing in. It's really, it's really, really good. And then really what we have then is with the final kind of wrap-up of this whole investigation were... All the kids are being sent upstate, or those that aren't pretty enough to go into fostering are going upstate. <laughs> and Doug and Patty return. It's um, the undamaged or, or, or pretty was the, was the yeah. one, isn't it? It's the undamaged kids. So which which one is Selena Kyle? She's you know people She's have good. said yeah people have said that she looks like a young Michelle Michelle Pfeiffer, which I totally understand. I can so she's obviously see pretty, that. but she's obviously a damaged kid. So yeah, um, and yeah. Doug and Patty essentially steal thirty kids. And take them um, in a bus to take them to their international procurer of of children. Um, One of the interesting things we see, though, in the yellow school bus, um, just as it's taken away, uh, just before, I should say, it's taken away, is that Selena pulls from her pocket a locket. Mm -hmm. um, And it has two pictures on either side of the heart-shaped locket. I think it's the same person i think it's the same lady um and it's interesting whether that might be her mum. she's an orphan kid on the street and this sets her up maybe 
to start looking to try and find who her parents were, or at yeah. least her mother was. Absolutely, there's definitely a discussion later on with, with one of the police officers about her mother and the fact that she believes her mother isn't dead, she's just gone somewhere. Um, so this could possibly be the quest for Selena Kyle for the series, is to find her mother, to find her roots, essentially. But yeah, I love, as I said earlier on, I love that it's gone 25 minutes in an episode called Selena Kyle before you hear a word from her. And essentially about the second or third word she has is an insult to um, to someone that's trying to help her out, uh, calls her Pigarella, um, and then gets on board and sees a child who's kind of curled up and crying about the idea that he's being sent upstate. And she goes, well, I've got, uh, she's got some tips for him. She's obviously been upstate before. She's obviously been to this bad district before. She says, you know, don't be friendly to anybody who's friendly to you. Bad idea. And if you if if they make you angry or if you want to get out of there, go for the eyes. Um, telling you her her modus operandi, her her uh, you know her attack move, I suppose you'd call it. Yeah. Um, which yeah, which we see a bit later on. But they get taken to um, Trident Intercontinental Shipping mm. to be shipped off to the the guy um, or the person who is procuring these children, and we get to hear that in this scene in the warehouse of Trident Inter- Intercontinental Shipping, we also heard it's before as well. Yeah. It's the dollmaker, yeah. The dollmaker is the is is the boss of uh, of these two characters. So again, these are just these are just right hand man and woman for another bad guy in the in the show. And the dollmaker is a character that was in Arrow. Um, it was in a couple of episodes of Arrow, uh, season one, I think. Um, we're not sure whether there's a connection there, but this could actually be the first crossover. And it's the yeah. easiest way to cross over: just reference someone and send the underlings to the city. There you go, it's sorted. Uh, really, really interesting. We've had a crossover in episode two, if we're yeah, essentially yeah. yeah. But there are slight, potentially slight differences in Arrow. The Dollmaker essentially it was like House of Wax, whereby mm. he would essentially fill people with wax and turn them into figurines or um, statues, statues yeah. dolls. Whereas here, he's taking 30 children at a time, uh, whereas in Arrow, he was kind of making tableaus and putting them in sort of heightened positions and so on. Here, it's kidnapping children, and then at this moment in time, we don't know what they're doing. Exactly. Um, is he making figurines from them or dolls? And maybe children would be more doll-like or is it something else yeah i love the little suggestion that comes from quill from the interrogation of quillen who's the one that's led them to trident uh he's he saw the trident symbol which essentially is the the uh the fork on top of a plate is what he saw um which made him think that it was a it was are they eating kids and suddenly it became the big investigation for the person that eats kids which is not which is absolutely not what was happening these kids are getting shipped off for a reason but it's nothing to do with, hopefully, that he's eaten the children. Um, but very interesting. Yeah, really, really, really cool. But we see a nasty side of Selena here. Mm-hmm. Um, she says to the kid, you know, if anyone on the school bus before they're at the shipping container, like, you know, if anyone gives you any hassle, go for their eyes. Yeah. And here we see it. Yeah, yeah. She takes out the eyes of uh, of one of the one of the uh, guys that's that's taking care of the shipping, essentially. Uh, and another fantastic scene yeah. of, Libby, of Lily Taylor where she goes, ah, it's not that bad, and then pulls a gun and shoots the guy in the head. It's, but first off, it, it just it clicks, locks, and yeah. the guy has got no eyes, is kind of looking round, and she adjusts, makes sure the bullet's in the chamber, yep. and bosh. Yeah, yep. 
um, and Jim arrives just in time to save uh, save the day. Um, Selena has gotten to a high high position to get away from uh, get away from Patty. Uh, crawls all the way up, and um, she looks like a cat staring down from from that position. Jim arrives just in time to punch out Patty, and Harvey goes and takes care of Doug. So those two have been captured, but the, the doll maker, the maker is we, still at large. Yeah. It's still at large. Presumably has other people doing the same work, or mm-hmm. will do now, um, and maybe is a bigger presence for later on at some point in the season. Exactly. We don't know we yet. Don't know. Yes, um, exactly. But the other aspect then is that pit, is the shaft down into the sewer. Uh-huh. That may just be a passing reference, or it could be something that allows something to be born from the sewers. (laughs) You can't wait to see Killer Croc on the show, and I'm not sure it's going to happen. No, it's not going to (laughs) happen, but But it looks Killer Crocky. And even if it's just a reference to, you know, we can get rid of these kids easily by essentially chucking them down into the sewers. Exactly. Yeah, I like like it, though. Um, But we're left with a bombshell. Mm Mm-hmm. A big bombshell from Selena as um, she wants to speak with Jim Gordon. She's quite adamant mm-hmm. about about this. And she tells him, I really saw who killed the Waynes, clear as day. Yeah. So. Nice little cliffhanger yeah. at the end of the episode. Yes. But for me, definitely throughout this episode, throughout the first episode, you see Selena will do anything to get herself out of trouble. Um, she specifically says to Gordon, if I had something that you really wanted, would you be able to get me out of being moved uptown? Um, she is terrified, and it's very clear. She is terrified about moving uptown. Uh, I am 100% convinced, without seeing the next four or five episodes, I am 100% convinced that Selena Kyle is saying to him exactly what he wants to hear. Uh, he wants to hear there's a witness to the murders. He wants to hear that there's someone that uh, that saw exactly who killed um, killed Bruce Wayne's parents. That's exactly what she tells him. I saw him clear as day. Firstly, it was the middle of the night. So, yeah, she calls herself Cat. Can she see in the dark? Um, secondly, she arrived maybe 10, 15 seconds before the murder of, of the Waynes. So she was in a position that she could possibly have seen it, but partly unlikely. But uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm personally, I feel she's lying to get out of the situation that she's found herself. Yeah. yeah, no, I I agree with that definitely. Yeah. Well, we'll see, we'll see. Once again, we have we we have been proven wrong in the past. Yeah. So uh, overall, anything else that you want to add to the uh, discussion? No, I think that's for me. I think that the episode two, Selena Kyle, was a really good build on the pilot episode. I think it it didn't cram as much in which the pilot obviously is going to do. The investigation, it was kind of like, it felt to me like it was an initial thing. And that was because it introduced us to the political wranglings within this world with with the mayor, with Captain Essen in a really good way. But it had some great scenes between Alfred, Jim and Bruce, between Harvey Bullock and Jim and their relationship with Oswald um, and his character development after coming out of, of the river. Yeah, yeah. These scenes with Fish and Falcone, I'm really loving that as well. There's some excellent, excellent scenes for me, um, which really had some great writing, yeah. some really good points, and it was sort of 
contextualized and surrounded by this investigation that was going on. Mm -hmm. And and I loved that. I thought it was a really good episode coming on the back of the pilot and expanding on that. Yep. As I said, something that uh, struck me pretty early on is if this is a prece- if this show is going to be a police procedural, and only fifteen minutes of the episode or twenty minutes of the episode are going to be dedicated to that police procedural, and the rest of it's going to be dedicated to developing the characters of Gotham, like this episode was, I'm really happy with that direction for the show. I think it was really well yeah. done. Um, so while I can totally understand that some people don't wouldn't like the characters of Paddy and Doug, they do seem a little bit comic booky for the world that's being created here. I say comic booky like that, and that's a real brush off. I totally feel there are hundreds of ways that comic books have have created great characters as well. So that, that's not a they diss. had a real menace to it's, them. It's despite not a diss. It felt it, it could feel like characters that were in uh, the animated series, but I think they're hugely brutal characters hidden yeah. behind a veneer of politeness that's all yeah um, i agree so i, I think, think hu- there's a huge menace to them i mean these guys are abducting children <laughs> they have to put on a child's face and to entice them in mm-hmm. and then their methods are one of drugging and killing if need be and they've got a master and they have to to deal with that, with those orders, and they will do that anyway. The real menace behind the politeness, yeah, yeah. Um, which makes it more frightening. I so agree. That's our review of episode two. Yeah. Really good. Um, On to some feedback. So we got a bit of feedback from Daniel from Welcome to Level 7. Uh, he says, guys, love the show, but I do get to do something that I've never done before, but so many have done to me. Uh, you missed an e- Easter egg and Joker watch in episode one. Uh, during one of the landscape scans of the city, we see buildings flying by. At the top of one of the buildings is graffiti that says smile. Uh, I believe there's also a smile drawn in the building as well. Since they took the time to add it, they clearly were teasing us. Can't believe you missed something for Joker Watch, John. We were trying, I know. Uh, we were really, really fine tooth comb there. But well done, Daniel. Well done. But it, like that is an excellent spot. Completely passed me by. Yeah. Totally. Uh, Daniel goes on to say that uh, he had, get, had a bit of feedback on the pilot on the first episode. He says, my biggest concern with the pilot is the hero, Jim. He was not able to save himself. Sure, we can't let him solve the Wayne murder in one episode. But could our hero at least save someone, including himself, instead of the villain saving him? Uh, honestly, it would have been better if Bullock had saved him. Uh, but in the end, it felt like they gave us that ending so Jim could meet Falcone. I mean, I I liked that Jim met Falcone. Absolutely. I thought it was a really good um, scene from that episode, and if not, you know, up there with one of the best from that episode. It had power and resonance to it, and I think has implications for the future based on. Uh, Jim Gordon's father as the DA and his association with Falcone. I can understand what Agent Daniel is um, saying about Jim. I just wonder whether for Jim to save himself as well in the first episode, whether that's too soon. Mm. I think part of this point, at least to begin with, um, of the show is that it's as corrupt and everyone is corrupt, whether it's totally and without any other redeeming feature or maybe they make wrong decisions at some point for jim despite being a hero he's not a out and out pure hero he made what we know to be a wrong decision of saving someone's life because it creates the penguin mm-hmm. but actually he did the right thing um in saving 
a person's life. Yeah. And I just, I think maybe it moves down the line. I think it also resonates with um, the Jim Gordon from Dark Knight Rises, where uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character really has a go at Jim Gordon in that, you know, that he plunged his hands into the mud, that kind of line where I had to get down and get filthy to do my job for, to and to to be better, to make things better. And I wonder if there's an element of that in there as well, maybe. Yeah, I but I understand where he's coming from, definitely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, I also think that the, the thing it does show about Jim is that he does have to depend on other people. And it's a, it's a really difficult position to be in. He's new to the city. Everybody seems to be corrupt, but there are some people that he has to depend on here. Um, unfortunately, one of them happens to be Falcone, uh, and one of them happens to be Harvey Bullock, who he's not, who he doesn't necessarily trust, but who does have to depend on, you know, a bit of help from him occasionally, which is, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. But thanks very much for the feedback, Dan. Yeah, no, thanks. That's yep. uh, that's really good. Anyway, we get a good bit of feedback on uh, on Twitter as well. We got to, got some. some this this is for episode two now. Uh, yeah. yeah, that was this evening. Um, after um, Selena Kyle episode aired on Channel 5. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's a bit of feedback from Sean Lunn about uh, his loving um, loving Oswald Cobblepot and loves the... Uh, I was saying that we love the uh, the image of Oswald uh, bargaining down the uh, the <laughs> ransom from 10,000 10, to 5,000 and Sean Lunn responded to, he's, he's recession conscious, bless him. Which <laughs> <laughs> I thought was quite good. Uh, another bit of feedback that came in from Matt Walby who was saying that uh, he believes it's just a show-stealing performance from Cameron Bicandova. Uh, I think we agree. She was yeah. fantastic in this episode. Really, really, really good job. Yeah, on to, uh, on to another bit of feedback. Yeah, um, and another bit of feedback for episode two it comes from Scott Fisher again. He says he's done with watching the second episode of Gotham, and for him, this episode was better than the pilot episode. With many shows, the first episode is great, and then the next few episodes suck. If they can maintain this kind of quality in a show, then Gotham will be a major hit. I will keep my feedback kind of general because I do not believe in giving out spoilers unless there is a reason for spoilers in making a larger point. You're grand now, Scott, because we... We've made all the spoilers. We've made all the spoilers, and we've spoiled um, the episode totally. Um, But we certainly get your point, that fine line between um, discussing something and making spoilers. But... um, Scott's first point then really is you could really see Gordon, Jim Gordon, struggling with other people's perceptions of him throughout the episode since they think he killed the pe- the penguin. And you could see how uncomfortable he was with people thinking that about him. What was interesting was how people react to Jim. Some are drawn to him because they sense his honesty and others are threatened by him and threatened by that honesty. They sense in him it creates some really interesting dynamics. Mm. And I think that's a really interesting point. That's and a good point, yeah. You kind of, you get that from Harvey Bullock straight off the bat that, look, I don't know how to deal with you because you've got this moral code, even though he thinks he's shot the Penguin mm-hmm. um, or Oswald, um, but then you don't want me to hit this kid. Or, you know, later on, you see him hitting Quillen, and that's all right for Jim. Yeah. So that there's a bit of... Um, ambiguity I think even in Jim that certainly Harvey Bullock is like I just don't get you you're righteous on one moment not so much the next yeah Fish Mooney similarly you know you're straight as an arrow Um, she kind of she's interested to see it's like 
you know, her power is supposed to be that she can read people quite well, quite mm-hmm. quickly, um, but she can't with him. He's kind of fogged to well, her. Well, exactly, because he's just done something that's completely out of character, out of the character that she would have expected from Jim. So that's quite, it's a really interesting point. Same again with Captain Essen. You know, she's been told, obviously, what happened. She's been told by Harvey that he's on plan, he's on he's on project, essentially. Um Yet he's acting this way again. He's, you know, leading, uh, he's trying to lead a case a different way uh, than she would have expected him to do. So, yeah, really good point, Scott. And then the second point that he makes is that for him, standout uh, in this episode was Selena Kyle, or Kat, as uh, she told everyone to call her. Her performance was outstanding. You could see the beginnings of somebody that is not good and is not bad, but looks out for herself because nobody else will, mm-hmm. yet also cares deeply about the people around her. Catwoman in the comics is at her best when she is not good or bad, but operating in that grey area in life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important point. I think um, even though she didn't speak for, what, 30, 35 minutes... For me, I'm actually really enjoying that. I like this kind of, this observer in the world. And then she comes right out with it to say to Jim Gordon, well, I've been following you. Um, Mario Pepper was just a patsy. Um, I know that he didn't really do it. I saw the person who did it. I need you to help me. She's operating in that grey area where she's doing something morally good, but to help her. Yeah. If she is even telling the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's a great thing in a character to have that dynamic, I think, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Like, Selena feels like the lifeblood of Gotham City, of the Gothamites themselves, not the people in power of the city. She's not in power. She has no power, but she will do everything she can to use what she has available to her to save herself from falling into a bad a bad situation, essentially. So, um, yeah, really interesting. And I think really it's a big shout-out to Cameron Bicandover, actually, because this is her first acting job as far as I'm aware like she's a dancer that's her her background that's why she can crouch and poise herself like a cat in such an incredible way Mm -hmm. but this is like her first main role in front of a camera as far as I can see from a TV point of view exactly yeah I think she'd done she'd done a film in the past with her dance crew uh, I guess that's what you call it, um, but uh, but she hasn't done a hasn't done a speaking role. She hasn't done a big role in it in, in the past, and I think she's cast really really well for this. Um, as I mentioned earlier on, there are some people that are making comparisons to a young Michelle Pfeiffer, and you can totally see that it's it's a she she's a beautiful a beautiful character, beautiful actress. She's doing a great job in in this role, um, for such a young young actress. So Scott's third uh, point is I continue not to be a fan of Fish Fish Mooney, um. I just do not like the character. She is too much of a thug with little else to her as a character. They need to flesh out this character more because she is the weak link right now on the show from his point of view. In a sense, I kind of, at this moment in time, I'm not necessarily um, in agreement with mm. with Scott on this. Um, I can see how it would play that way. I think she is one of the more extravagant and um, flamboyant of the characters, definitely. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think there's a really good point that she made at the Paley Fest interviews this weekend, which I thought was which I thought was fascinating, where she's essentially saying that she is a fully formed villain in the show, unlike all the other characters that you see around her, unlike the, the Penguin, unlike Catwoman, unlike 
Riddler. She has to be, she has to carry that burden of being a fully formed villain. So it's created for the show. Um, and what she's essentially saying is that her her the villain esque piece that she's pushing, pulling, uh, pulling out and pushing forward is theatricality. That's that's what's going to stand out a better character, and that's what Jada Pinkett Smith wants to create with the character. And I can see what she's going for, and I can kind of see you know if you put the fully formed Penguin into Gotham or the fully formed Catwoman or the fully formed Riddler into this TV show of Gotham, they would stand out like a sore thumb. Uh, it's going to show the creation of all of those characters, but when you're bringing out Fish Mooney as a, a newly created character, it's kind of nice to have something a bit standout and a bit theatrical in there. I kind of I like it personally. I think as well, on top of that, I've really enjoyed some, what I personally, in in my kind of own way, think are really quite pivotal scenes. I think some of the lines from the episode one about you're a cool glass of milk and there's a little danger in your eyes to Jim Gordon I think that's some great lines that she's got to deliver there and then her understated confrontation that subtle confrontation with Falcone in in the Mm. bar where that theatricality that over the topness was just pegged back totally no, I did. I did say earlier on at the end of that scene where she screams out, and you know, I, I do think that was a little bit too far. But you know, finding a balance, you know, I'll, t- I'll give her five or six episodes before casting yeah. aspersions and really being down on her. I'm really liking what she's doing so far. I think one thing that we should say, given that you mentioned the Paley Fest, was that for those of you who weren't able to capture um, the Gotham panel at Paley Fest live, well, certainly if you're in the UK or Ireland, you were looking at around midnight yeah. on Sunday just before work. We're nutbags, so, you know, we actually stayed up and watched this. Then we watched The Wire Reunion, and then we watched uh, Hannibal panel. So, I mean, yeah, um, not the best start for a Monday, but nonetheless, um, it was it was a great selection of panels at the Paley Fest, of which the Gotham one was excellent. Yeah. What I would say is if you want to check out the Gotham panel from Paley Fest, you can do that at tv.yahoo.com forward slash blogs, forward slash TV hyphen news, forward slash. Um, and you can check out the Gotham Paley Fest panel, which is an amazing thing. I love the Paley Fest. I love the Paley Center. I've seen so many good things from the Batman 75 panel that earlier in the year, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the ones that happened this year. It yeah. is a really very good um little fest when when they happen yeah we'll pop up the link in the uh, in the show notes um i think the previous paley fest panel that we'd seen was actually the batman 75 one in uh, in march and that was when the first premiere of the gotham trailer happened right while we were watching it at one or two and two in the morning yeah. so it kind of kicked off another phase of our podcast so we were we have we have a lot of thanks to, to give to paley fest yeah it's paley been, fest awesome. is is cool uh, but watch the um, panel, it's really good. They've got uh, got Sean Perkley and, and Jada Pinkett-Smith and stuff on, on there. It's really, really good. Yeah, there's, really um, there's Sabrina Guevara as well. Really good. Robin Lord Taylor, um, Ben McKenzie, Donal Logue, mm-hmm. uh, Danny Cannon. So the panel's really good. Um, but Scott then finishes with that so far I'm really enjoying the show. I find myself not missing um, the Batman at all. Um, but really caught up in what led up to Gotham needing the Batman, which is great for Bruno Heller and Danny Cannon that that 
nugget um, of an idea, that sort of inspiration that they had is, is finding an audience. He finishes off with, keep up the good work, uh, really enjoying the podcast. So yes. thanks, thanks, thanks Scott. Scott. And for anyone out there, you know, we, of course, welcome any feedback and we would love to hear it so that we can essentially do this extra bit of discussion at the end of our review where we can bring in other people's ideas, other people's thoughts and views on that episode because everyone's got something different to bring to the table. Absolutely. So if you really want to bring um, and comment or discuss or come back to us with anything, please feel free to do that at any of our um, social media handles, which is Gotham TV Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google Plus. You can also come back to us directly on the comment section at the bottom of any of the posts that we put up on our website, which is www.gothamtvpodcast.com. And of course, we now have our own feedback email, which is feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com. Yeah. So please get involved in the discussion, Absolutely. bring your ideas to the table, and we'll be more than happy to, to bring them to everyone else who's listening. Absolutely, and, and essentially we, uh, we're we on Twitter pretty much all the time, so we, we are good at chatting on there. If you don't fancy just sending in a big email like Scott's done, and if you just fancy making a quick comment, pop it on on Twitter to us. We, uh, we have good chats on there, and we've been really lucky to get some of the cast involved as well, which is, which is great fun. Popped out a, a quick mention earlier on, on on Twitter about the appearance of Carol Kane in this episode. Loved her appearance. Um, mentioned that you know herself and uh, Christmas Allen and, and Montoya were really good. Um, Andrew Stewart Jones got back to us and just kind of said he can't speak for Victoria Cartagena as to how good that scene was. He was just trying to keep up with Carol Kane the whole time because uh, she's <laughs> a legend of film and, and TV to him, um, which is really nice and it's it's great to great to have that kind of feedback from uh, from the cast and, and that stuff. So. We'll close it out, I guess, for yeah. for this week. Nothing else. Thank uh, you. No, I think um, again, a really good episode. Uh, episode two, really building on what episode one, the pilot, brought to us. Really, um, some excellent scenes in that, um, surrounded by a kind of creepy investigation. Really, yeah. um, so thanks everyone for listening. It's so much appreciated. Yeah, absolutely, and we're looking forward to episode three, which is Balloon Man that mean uh looking forward to that one and uh, and please join us again next week thank you thank you oh, can't anybody see we've got a wall to fight never find a way regardless of what they say How can it feel This wrong From this moment How can it feel This wrong Gotham TV Podcast Do not cross Alan and Montoya. <laughs> <laughs> CGI soup um, with a cotton candy <laughs> sort of topping. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's um, 
fish keeps around for exercise is Laszlo. <laughs> uh, there's been some discussion about Laszlo that that's push-ups. Uh, some push-ups, exactly. <laughs> um, some discussion about Laszlo that he could possibly be squat thrusts. And <laughs> <laughs> um, something certainly, again, we get introduced to a lot of number number twos or right hand. <laughs> We come to Jim Gordon, and what does he have to say about Jim? And now, let's be you okay. We come to Jim Gordon, and he's got Stooge. (laughs) You wrote it all. Got the three Stooges, and now I thought you had them. We come to Jim Gordon, and he's got Stooge written underneath. Oh, God, poor Lyric. <laughs> really, really good. Snotted. Before he even got to third year of university. Well, that's what he gets for being a jock. <laughs> well, we're not keeping it snotted, so I might as well say that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 